Good morning, church. Well, today we're going to be finishing the first book, the book of 1 John. So if you have your Bibles with you and you want to open them up to 1 John chapter 5. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one in the pew rack in front of you. And in that copy, we're on page 1230. 1230, again, 1 John chapter 5. Now, for the past 13 weeks, we've been looking at um, this sort of poetic letter, or better, this sermon manuscript written by the Apostle John to this small, struggling church. And today, we finally come to the end. We've come to the end today. If you've been with us on this journey, you'll know that John has been sort of circling and circling around a few key concepts of what a true church community actually looks like to be a sort of uncommon community in this world, characterized by God's love and his life and his light. Well, as we come to the end, John does it again. He'll lap around all of these ideas in hopes of reassuring our Christian community to continue pressing into the gospel in a way that actually is life-giving, not just polite or kind or friendly, but in a way that actually pushes back the darkness and the death of the world and shines the eternal life of God. There's a lot in here for us this morning. I really do believe that. Um, So we're going to read the whole passage through and then we'll jump in together. So we're going to start in verse 13 and work our way all the way to the end. So would you join me in reading 1 John chapter 5 starting in verse 13. It says this, I write these things to you, you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Can we pray one more time before we jump in? Heavenly Father, we are ever grateful that you have given us your word and that you still speak to us in and through it. We ask you to continue to speak to us. Um, Would you please help me, give me clarity of speech and thinking And may we come to see the glory of Jesus even more. We're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. amen. Well, have you ever been given a gift before, whether it be Christmas or a birthday, and after unwrapping it, you don't know what it is? Has anyone ever been there? Or what it's for? You kind of open up, this is a lovely necklace. Oh, these are luggage tags. Oh, I've always wanted customized luggage tags. Have you been there before? Many in here, I'm sure, consider themselves good gift givers. Is there any good gift givers in here? That's right, Sam. Very good. There are some good good gift givers who kind of store away memories and 
uh, file away little interesting remarks and conversations that turn into this perfect gift months later. I'm also sure there's many like myself who sweat over gift giving. Anyone in that category? Sweat over gift giving. Will they like it? Do they actually need this? Is this too much, too little, too expensive? Oh, not enough? We're the ones who apologize and make sure the person knows the receipts in the box before they even open it. Does anyone else like that? No, I know you didn't want this, but just hear me out. And then we can be on the other side of the gift giving. We can be the ones receiving the gifts, which comes with its own concerns and worries, right? I mean, how excited should I be? How many times should we say thank you for it to be proportionate to the gift? It takes years and years of experience and wisdom to know how to receive that new cake dish you weren't expecting or to receive the same mustard-colored sweater you received last year. Gift receiving is almost an art form. Or maybe I'm just becoming an overly polite and anxious Brit. I don't know. But we all know the number one gift receiving rule, right? We know what that is. Don't ask what it is. Don't ask what the gift is. If upon opening the gift, you cannot... You cannot make out what the item is. Don't ask. We've all been at those kids' birthday parties, right? And the child goes to open up our present, and he opens it and looks at his parents with slight disgust. What is this? It's just soul-crushing, isn't it? We never wish that upon another human being. I remember opening a small package, uh, a gift, which contained what looked to be a very shiny, fancy engraved spoon. And I did my part about it. I said how excited I was to finally have one of whatever it was, and how happy I was to have it, how I always wanted one. Only later did I figure out that it was a shoehorn, and I had no idea what a shoehorn was, but it actually turned out to be a really good, really helpful, fantastic, useful gift. Well, similarly, as we've been sort of trekking through this letter in John, John's been on and on and on about this gift of life that we've been given in Jesus. Last week, we looked at verses 11 and 12 of this chapter, which say, this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life. And life is in his Son. Whoever has a Son has life. Now, oftentimes, if we're honest, we can fall into the trap of think, taking this sort of gift of eternal life in Jesus and not really knowing what to do with it. Or trying our best to say, thank you, thank you, thank you, a million times without ever really opening it and finding out how to actually use it in this world. What does it look like? I think many of us, like me, open the gift and think it's a weird-looking a weird looking spoon that we'll never use. But we need someone to show us how to use it. We've gotten this idea that eternal life is simply a life beyond death, an infinite numerical amount of years that's kind of put on the end of your life, when actually the promise of life in Jesus isn't just for when you physically die, it's also for today. Like a nervous recipient on Christmas morning, we receive this gift, and A, we don't unwrap it, or B, we unwrap it, and we don't know what to do with it. The gift of eternal life sounds so abstract and removed from the here and the nowness of life sometimes, doesn't it? It can often sound like nothing more than a slightly more enhanced life than, than the one we have now with a sort of a big chunk added on to the end of it. This past week, um, Apple, the company, unveiled the new iPhone 10s and 10 Max. I don't know if there's any Apple fanboys in here, but like always, Apple wanted to make sure that you knew that their phones were the best phones. Once the highest resolution and the fastest processors, this is the phone that you need. Now the thing is, I have a phone, and it works fine, and I don't really need a new iPhone. 
I'm not going to go out and spend an arm and a leg to buy one either. But if someone did gift me one, I would gladly receive that. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Yeah, it's a great, a slightly faster, slightly more shiny, slightly better phone. Cool, great. I would be, I'd be really thankful for it. But that's kind of how we think about eternal life. Yeah, I know. Yeah, everyone I know, all my neighbors, my coworkers, my friends, my family, they all have pretty good lives. But I have eternal life, a slightly more enhanced life with a big chunk on the end of it. If the gift of eternal life is simply the offer of a better, slightly more enhanced life, then no wonder eternal life tends to just sort of roll off our tongue without any consideration. Well, John concludes the end of this letter. He wants this small, struggling church in the first century, and I'm sure he'd want our church here in the 21st century to recognize that this is not a matter of a simple life upgrade for the here and now. It's a matter of life and death. So, open up the gift of eternal life and use it. Take a look at verse 13. Would you reread verse 13 with me again? John says, I write these things to you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John's writing to those who believe, to those who do have eternal life, but what? That they'd experience and know that they have, that they possess eternal life. Not that one day they'll have eternal life, but they have eternal life right now. So this morning we're going to ask the question, what does eternal look, life look like today, this week, right now? Now, to get to the answer of that question, we first need to talk about sin. <laughs> I know you might be thinking, oh, maybe an inspirational talk about life, and here we are talking about sin. And that's a word in our culture, I think, that kind of gives us an automatic, almost gag reflex. See, outside of church, we don't really talk about sin in our everyday conversations. If so, only very ironically. As a Christian culture, we use, we use the word, but rarely do we ever delve into the mechanics and the parasite that sin actually is. But here, John seems to go, as we read, on and on and on about sin and death and evil. And in verse 15 to 18, John describes the power of eternal life in the midst of sin, which brings death into this world. Because look again at the very end of verse 19. The end of verse 19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Really? Really, John? Here, 21st century Suffolk. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Is that really true? Well, for us to understand what it looks like to have eternal life right now, here, today, we first have to understand what now actually looks like. What's going on right now? For many of us, eternal life sounds like a cliche because we've forgotten to see the world through the lens of sin and death and evil if we, don't know, if we don't think that the world and humanity is utterly broken and fractured, eternal life is not going to make any sense to us. A theologian and scholar named Cornelius Plantinga wrote a book on this called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's an exploration of sin. It doesn't sound like a, a fun book, but I highly recommend it. One of the best books I've read. And in the preface, he lays out sort of the current situation. Um, let me read that to us. He says this, he says, The awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it. Some of our grandparents even agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he could still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive 
and slightly more intelligent sister might worry that the sin threatened her very salvation. But, but the shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation, you have sinned, is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals a sort of inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. Catholics lined up to confess their sins. Protestant preachers rose up to confess our sins, and they did it regularly. Many Christians can recall sermons in which the preacher got visibly angry over the congregation's sin. When these preachers were in full cry, he writes, they would make red-faced, finger-pointing, second-person plural accusations. You are sinners, filthy, guilty, miserable sinners. He writes, you, never, you were never in doubt that what these preachers were talking about, they were talking about sin. But in today's group confessional, he writes, get this, it's hard to tell if we're still talking about sin. The newer language fudges it. And he gives this quote. He says, in our modern age, this is what we say. Let us confess our problems with human relational, ad human relational adjustment dynamics and especially our feebleness in networking. That's what we think sin is nowadays. Or this one. I'd just like to share that we just need to target holiness as a growth area. That's, when we're talking about sin, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? He says, where sin is concerned, people mumble now. Where sin is concerned, people mumble now. True or false? True. We think of sin in sort of two categories. The big decisions we make that have gone wrong, that maybe happen once or twice a year, and then this sort of human relational adjustment dynamics that we can't quite nail down and it's not that big of a deal. No wonder eternal life doesn't sound that appealing. However, a generalized numbness to sin and evil has begun to catch up with us as a culture. Sin and death are quickly beginning to have a place in our cultural vocabulary once again. We're finding that we cannot live without an understanding of original sin. Nothing less can make sense of the brokenness we see in our world. Another author and writer named Francis Spufford, who actually lives quite close in Cambridge, wrote a book called Why Despite Everything, Christianity Can Still Make Emotional Sense. And in it, Spufford writes, and he makes a case from a slightly different perspective, that Christianity rings the most true because it takes seriously what he calls the crack in everything. That we're not all not only bad sometimes, but we're in the league of the guilty. And what flows from us is often chaos. Spufford redefines original sin in his own phrase, using an explicative we won't use, but he's, he calls it... Let's see if we can get this going. He calls it, we have a very high propensity to mess things up. He writes, you find that you aren't what you thought you were, but something much more multiple and mysterious and self-subverting. And this discovery doesn't propel you to a new understanding of things. It propels you into a state where you don't understand anything at all. Secularism can't make sense of the world without a fundamental Christian understanding of sin and death and evil. Our world is not only in need of improvement, it's in need of saving and recreating. We don't even understand ourselves, and sin abounds all the more. One last one. Just this past May, in the New York Times, an article was written by Crispin Sartwell that says, that was entitled, What's So Good About Original Sin? From a completely secular mindset. I just want to read you one more paragraph from him. He says this. He says, when I look within, I see extreme certain failings. I've not been able to get rid of most of them, 
and I've accumulated others as I've gone along. Perhaps you've done better. But most of us certainly come up short of our ideals, ones I hope most people, religious or not, generally share. To be generous, to be peaceful, energetic, and helping others, to be hesitant to help ourselves at their expense, to take care of the world we inhabit, to not only not kill one another or even think about it, but to love one another. But even by our own moral standards, we are profoundly flawed. To complicate matters further, action undertaken for apparently good motives can often yield unintended harmful consequences, true or false, that outweigh any possible good effects. We can intend at best only a tiny proportion of the effects of any of our actions. In trying to make the world an excellent place for human beings to live by, developing and applying ingenious technologies, we may wind up rendering it inhabitable. Or in trying to keep ourselves safe and secure by stockpiling defensive weaponry, we may annihilate life on earth. There's really no need for God's punishment when you're making your own hellfire. As Paul told the Romans, I do not know what it is that I accomplish, and what I wish, this I do not do. Instead, what I hate, this I do. The New York Times cannot but admit that the category of original sin makes sense of this world. That we are all victims to what seems to be an evil power that governs the world, as John says, but also perpetrators of death and evil that we commit our own sins against each other, as John has just said. If we suppress our recognition of sin, If we believe the lie that everyone is basically good deep down, that the world is only going to get better, that society will iron out all the kinks, that when you you open the gift of eternal life, you're going to ask, what's this? Last last quote, I promise. Um, Plantinga, the one we first uh, mentioned, uses a musical analogy, and this is how he writes it. He says this, Self-deception about our sin is a narcotic, a tranquilizing and disorienting suppression of our spiritual central nervous system. What's devastating about it is that when we lack an ear for the wrong notes in our lives, we cannot play the right ones or even recognize them in the performance of others. Eventually, we make ourselves religiously so unmusical that we miss both the exposition and recapitulation of the main themes God plays in human life the music of creation, and still the greater music of grace and life whistle right through our skulls, causing no catch of breath and leaving no residue. Moral beauty begins to bore us. The idea that the human race needs a savior sounds quaint. The idea that the human race needs a savior sounds quaint. What John is trying to do, he's trying to retune our ears to recognize the wrong notes so we can hear the music of grace and life. The world actually is under the power of the evil one. There is a crack in everything. Our world is broken. Our societies are fractured. Our families are in disrepair. Our hearts are actually polluted. And we don't even understand ourselves. Sin is like this parasite that attaches itself to us and to every action we do couple questions. Do you often find yourself angry and speaking harshly to the people that you love the most and you can't figure out why? You don't want to be angry and yet you are. Do you find yourself staying up late at night, harboring bitterness towards other people 
replaying conversations over and over, gossiping with yourself? Do you find yourself coming back to the same sin time and time again as if it's against your own will? When you walk into a room of coworkers, do you immediately rank everyone's importance with yourself at the top? Do you stay up late, late at night scheming about how you can use your money to get more for yourself? Do you find yourself indifferent to the pain and trouble you cause others? Do you feel that your heart is divided, like you have two competing wills in your heart? Sin might sound like an outdated word with little value, but I suspect that alongside what we've heard and read and considered, it might be the truest word we can use. Christianity can still make a surprising amount of emotional sense. Now, I know that we're about halfway through already, and we haven't even begun to dig into the text or look at the points, but it's because I truly believe that if we can recover this insightful, truthful understanding of sin and death, that the passage just opens up. For John, the gift of eternal life is so glorious when we realize that we need daily deliverance in our lives, in a world ruled by the evil one, that sin entraps, that our relationships tend to break down, that upon seriously looking at all of our own hearts, we find anger, resentment, greed, lust, pride, indifference, selfishness, that our actions oftentimes bring more death than life into this world. So, The gift that John has been on and on about is that in Jesus you have eternal life. Not just a longer life, but a deeper, truer life today. You need to know that you're connected with the source of life itself. In whom there is no shadow or darkness. No, no darkness at all. So, what does it look like to have then this eternal life today? What does that look like? We're going to look quickly at three perspectives of what John wants us to know about this eternal life. So first, it means this. It means you can, have, you can confidently ask God for help because he hears you. Let's read verses 14 and 16 uh, together again. Starting in verse 14, it says this. And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. We'll stop there. Now, this idea of asking God, whatever you wish, according to his will, that's not a new idea. We find this idea in the Gospels. We find it in Paul. And even Jesus says, ask, and you shall receive. However, every time we hear this promise we, of asking God anything according to his will, we tend to either A, think he's a genie in a bottle, and we have this stack of blank checks, or B, we start to hypothesize, what does it mean to pray according to his will? Now, I don't think John's referring to God being a genie in a bottle, nor do I think he wants to start fretting about what the will of God is. John wants us to have the confidence that God hears our requests and grants them, John, here is assu- John is assuming the kind of requests that we'll be making. He's assuming the kind of requests we'll be making. Take a look at verse 16. He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. That word ask is the same that's used in verses 14 and 15. John assumes that your request will be, Please give me more life, Lord. Or, Please give them more life. 
In the midst of an evil world with divided hearts, you can have the utmost confidence that when you ask the Lord to give you life in your relationships, in your work, in your parenting, he will hear it and he will give you life. In the context, John assumes that the most important thing that you're going to ask God about is your sanctification and other sanctification because that is life. On the surface, this might sound like a cliche promise, but remember, if we really do live in a world under the power of evil, the evil one, if we really do find ourselves in sin, if we really do have a divided heart, the promise of eternal life in Jesus is that you can at any time have deep residing confidence that when you ask for help, he hears you and he grants you and the people around you with more life. That is a sweet promise. In the midst of a hard day, a hard week, or a hard month, when you're tempted to despair, to fall into anxiety, to go back to the sin that gives temporary comfort, to be tempted to grumble, when you're tempted to lash out your spouse, when you're tempted to conform to this system of sin and death, in those moments, you can have complete assurance that Jesus will hear you and give you life. More often than not, these patterns of habitual sin flow from a dry prayer life. And more often than not, when we find ourselves giving into sin, what we're doing is pushing Jesus to the sideline and, and saying, I got this. I'm going to do it my way. And what happens? Sin and death and pain for ourselves and the people around us. The promise of eternal life today, when you get home this afternoon, this week, is that he is there ready and able to give you life when you feel sin coming on. When your blood starts to boil, instead of giving in, ask, Lord, give me life. Don't let me bring death into this situation. When you begin to entertain the thought of sin, ask him, Lord, help me to stay right here with you. Intimacy with Jesus is freedom from sin, and that is eternal life. I'm sure many of us today probably have a very vibrant prayer life, and you know this calming reassurance and power, knowing that the God of heaven and earth hears you and will grant you your prayers for life. But I'm sure there's many of us here today whose prayer lives are dry and rusty, who have in turn become numb and insensitive and indifferent to sin. And we don't even realize what we're missing out on. Eternal life, the joy of sanctification, to be turned into the source of life as we look like Jesus. Notice also in verse 16, John doesn't think this is, an, this is isolated to each of us individually. He talks about seeing another brother, another fellow believer in sin. This is perhaps most countercultural, the most uncommon of all. We are meant to be connected and concerned with each other's sanctification. If our greatest concern is that we want to look more like Jesus and experience more life and become a source of life for others, then it also ought to be our greatest concern for others. But far often, though, when we see someone else committing a sin, we're quick to talk to someone else and grumble and gossip. We're quick to accuse, we're quick to point out, and yet very slow, if ever, to run to Jesus and ask for their life, to give them more. If you see sin in someone in this room, or you feel like you've been sinned against, your first port of call is to run to Jesus and ask that he would grant them more life. Why? Because hopefully, this whole past week, you've been on your knees asking for it too. Because we are sinners in need of grace and mercy. Can you imagine how different life would look? How much more eternal 
life would look. If whenever you're tempted by sin, you prayed. Can you imagine what it would look like for this church family, this community, to have each other's sanctification our highest priority? That would be remarkably uncommon. It would taste like eternal life. In order to do that, we need to be quick to pray and ask for life. And you can have complete confidence that he hears you. So I want to encourage you today, this week, pray. If you haven't spent time alone with God in weeks or months and you feel numb to sin and indifference, please go to him and ask for life. He'll do it. He said so. Every time you feel darkness and sin reaching for your heart, ask for life. He hears. As we often sing, Lord, I need you every hour. I need you. As famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, always respond to every impulse to pray, to experience internal life. We need to pray. We have confidence that he hears us. Secondly, experiencing eternal life means that we, we are to obediently fight sin because he protects. Let's reread quickly verses 16 all the way to 19. John writes, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that, lead, uh, excuse me, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. As we've already mentioned, John points out that this reality, that Satan has a grip on this world. Death, sin, and evil rule the world we live in. But... We can have confidence that God hears our prayers for life. So the natural question then is, if I'm asking God for life, then why aren't we all perfect? And why do we often find ourselves in sin? Shouldn't we stop sinning? And if we do still sin, does that mean we've lost our eternal life? This is often a critique of Christianity. You people are always about fighting sin and being pure, but you're just a bunch of hypocrites. And they're right. I find myself the deeper I dig, more sin. John doesn't think, though, that this means we ought to despair. We ought to fight sin, but we ought not despair. Why? Because of verse 18. Jesus protects us, and the evil one will not touch us. Now, I know there's a question sitting in all of our minds, and it's, what is this stuff about in verses 16 and 17 about a sin that leads to death and a sin that doesn't lead to death? What's that all about? Is there a specific sin that you do that just makes you too far gone? And what is that sin. A lot of people have different ideas on what this sin could be. They, some people think it's a kind of sin. So like, for example, murder. That's a sin that actually leads to death. Other people think it might just be a category of really bad sins, the ones that give you life sentences. But that doesn't seem significant or consistent in John, the Bible, or Jesus. There aren't some sins that are outside of Jesus' grace. So what is the sin that leads to death? Before we answer, though, we need to first realize the interesting point is not that there's a sin that does lead to death, but there's a sin that doesn't lead to death. The Bible is very clear. All sin leads to death. In Romans 6, Paul says the wages of sin is death. The fascinating part in here is that there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. The difference between these two types of sins is laid out in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning. 
but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. All sin leads to death. The only time sin will not lead to death is for those who belong to Jesus and do not make a practice of sinning. John's already went through this in chapters 2 and and chapter 3. Practicing lawlessness, giving into the way of the world, means death because it's ruled by death. In chapter 2, verse 16, John writes this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, that is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, simply put, the sin that leads to death is every sin. The world is broken. We're broken. And we break things that are good and life-giving. We bring death into the world, both here and in our daily lives. And eventually that will end in physical death and separation from God, who is life. As John says, the world is passing away. However, however, in Jesus, there's a gift of life. And even though we all deserve death and separation from the God of life, if we believe in his name, he will protect us and deliver us from death and separation, even as we stumble towards glory, fighting sin all the way. In verse 18, John points out that there are those who are born of God, who have trusted in Jesus, who have been born into this eternal life, and Jesus will protect them and not let the evil one touch them. That word touch in the original language doesn't really mean a simple kind of touch on the hand. It's not saying that Satan or sin will, ha- will never touch you, but it carries, carries this idea of grasping and holding on to and seizing. The, the idea isn't that you won't be untouched by sin, but at the end of the day, even in the midst of sin, Satan, evil, death itself will not be able to hold on to you. You will not ever be without life because you belong to Jesus and Jesus will protect you from death itself. He will not let the evil one claim you for himself because Jesus has already claimed you for himself. You belong to Jesus and he has already died the death that we deserve for our sin so that when the day comes for evil and death to lay their claims on us, he will protect us and hold us fast. At the end of the day, you ought to pray for life to fight evil and sin. But if you find yourself in it, do not despair. There is good news. There is sin that doesn't lead to death because Jesus has got you. I'm sure there are some here today who are on the edge of despair, who are tired and exhausted from fighting sin. And the gift of eternal life is to know that Jesus knows every corner of your heart better than you do. And even so, he will not let the evil one touch you. Jesus will protect you. You will still find yourself sinning, but the assurance of eternal life does not rest on your ability to pray or to fight sin. It rests in the fact that you belong to Jesus and he will protect you. All you have ahead of you is more life, more of Jesus. As we've already sung, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. As you ask him to help you in your daily life, he will give you life. And when you find yourself slow to ask him and quick to run to sin, remember, he's going to protect you until the very end. You are born of God. You belong to him. And eternal life is a gift. Finally, and we will end with this, intentionally resist idols because he is true. Let's read the last two verses of this book together. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true 
and we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. We come to the very end of this letter from John, and he ends the exact same way he begins. Don't follow empty idols. Don't follow God's substitutes. Don't follow speculations. Trust in Jesus, who is truth and life. As we look at Jesus, we see everything clearly. As John says, he has given us understanding. We understand ourselves as both sinners and saints. We see the world around us with clear eyes as it's passing away, waiting to be remade. As we look to Jesus, we see God himself, not an abstract theory of God, but God in a real man, flesh and blood, who walked among us, lived a sacrificial life, gave himself up for the world so we can experience eternal life. Jesus himself is eternal life. Therefore, let us resist every urge to trust something else or someone else that's trying to peddle eternal life. They won't be able to deliver. A job with a bigger salary will not give you the complete security you're looking for. The relationship you've always wanted cannot offer you the complete intimacy. The friend group you aspire to cannot offer you the complete stability and communion you long for. The new house and the new car cannot offer you the recognition you long for. The perfect health checkup cannot offer you the eternal life you long for. Whatever it is, whatever else you are trying to find salvation in, in your daily life, resist turning to it as an idol. Resist pushing Jesus to the side of your life in exchange for a God that doesn't care how you live. He wants to deliver you from the power of the evil one. Resist the urge to trust in yourself. Intentionally resist everything that seeks to dismantle Jesus from the very center of your life. Resist sin because it leads to death. But, but even so, even as we live in this broken world, we find ourselves caught in sin. Do not despair. For in Jesus, there is eternal life. And this life, it's yours. It's your gift. Unwrap it. He is yours and you are his. And no matter how far gone you think you are, he will protect you and get you home safely. The light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The way of the world is passing away. Death is swallowed up in victory. So, brothers and sisters, unwrap the gift of eternal life and stay close to Jesus. Whether you have a long history with him and you need to ask again for more life, or whether you need his eternal life for the first time, please don't hesitate. As you ask, you can have confidence that the real God of heaven, the God of earth, hears you and he will give you life. I promise, because that, that's his promise to us. Stay close to Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to stop and just realize what you've done for us in the midst of a world that is broken, in the midst of our own lives in which we don't even understand ourselves. We feel entrapped by sin, by anger, by lust, greed, and we find ourselves oftentimes bringing death into this world. We want to stop and realize that you are life and that you do not give us what we deserve to hand us over to death itself, but you sent your son to die the death we deserve so we can experience eternal life. 
We ask, Father, for help this week as we're often brought into situations in which we need your life and your help. Please teach us to run to you in prayer, to have confidence that you will give us life. You are a God of life. So we ask, please continue to help us build you as our cornerstone to find grace and truth and peace in Jesus alone. We pray it in his precious name. Amen.